0: And amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God from John chapter 17. I'll be reading the first five verses. These are the words of God. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let us pray. Father. As we come to this chapter. We thank you for allowing John and then us to hear and know this prayer of Jesus. May the preaching of your word instruct, edify, and glorify your people to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. What are the verses of the prologue of the gospel of John? How many times have I told you? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is a prologue. It's kind of like a table of contents, a summary of everything that he's going to be then revealing through the rest of the gospel. Take time to go back and read that. Time uh, every once in a while, and read that. And you'll see the themes that go all through this Gospel of John that we're going through in those first 18 verses. In, um, in verse 14, a very famous verse in that section, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, we, we always hear that because we hear the, the, the beginning of, of, the, of the gospel where it says, and, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and, and then everybody's talking about, well, then who is that Word? And then it's made very clear in verse 14. And this Word that I was talking about in verse 1, the Word became flesh. I'm talking about Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we oftentimes, do you know, if you didn't look in my outline, do you know the rest of that verse? Is it, does it also come to your mind? It says, and we beheld his glory, John writes. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory is a theme that runs all through the Gospel of John. Glory to the Father, the glory of the Son, and the glorification of his people as well. Glory is, um, is, is just all through this gospel, and, and the word glory is kind of hard to get your hand around it, always in your head around it, and understand exactly what is glory. What is that Shekinah glory? Is it something more than light? The word glory can mean weight or heaviness, a sense of importance. It, it can mean something about radiance and, and going forth. Um, but, but, but understanding exactly what the glory of God is or the glory of, uh, of Jesus is, is, is sometimes difficult to, to, to grab and understand. Well, there were seven signs that were given in the first uh, 11 chapters or chapters 2 through 11, you recall. We call those the book of signs. They were specific signs in the gospel that John particularly chose. Uh, Most of them are not in any of the other gospels. There's a couple that are repeats, but most of them are not. And, and he didn't choose a lot of the other signs that the other apostles did. Well, we're told, John tells us, I chose these signs particularly at the end of this book, at the end of the gospel. He says, I, cho- I chose these signs at the very be- at, throughout to, to give you so that you would know that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the promised Messiah. These signs reveal that and that he was the son of God and that through faith, one would receive life in him. That's chapter 20, verse 31. There's a bookends of the gospel you want to keep in your mind all the time as we're going through. And, and this is true for, um, for that would bring the glory to the Son. It would reveal him as the Word made flesh. It would reveal him as the Son of God. It would reveal him as the one who brings glory to the Father. This glory um, that, that kind of radiates back and forth between the Father and the Son, well here's a thought as we as we begin in this section as well. It, it, it's a good thing to pursue glory. Did you know that? Like it's good. You were actually built to seek glory. You're you you built to be glorified. That God made you. God made man, man to be the glory of God. He, he made man to, to to seek after glory. Our problem is not that we seek after glory. Our problem is that we seek in the wrong way or for the wrong glory. Our problem is that we have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Like we were supposed to reach it. We were supposed to get to the glory of God. We were supposed to have the glory of God. We were supposed to enjoy the glory of God. We fell short. Our sin, either our sin of seeking that glory wrongly or of seeking the wrong glory, caused us to fall short as a humanity beginning with Adam, and then in all humanity, to fall short of that glory that God wants us to pursue. But the perfect man did. The perfect man did pursue and receive glory. So um, Christ has made a way. He's made a way for us now to pursue glory rightly, a way that is glorious. And that glorious way of pursuing glory is the cross, is the cross, The cross is the glory of Christ. The cross is the glorious manifestation of the one that God has sent to be glorified. And and by this way, we can pursue that which we were actually made for, and that is glory. It's glory. It's the glory of knowing God. And as Jesus now turns from his sermon to this prayer that somehow John has picked up on, we're not sure if he's now in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, but this, these words may be have words that were also prayed in that garden at that time. It would be about the, that time that this would happen. John seems to know or has found out later that this prayer and has recorded it for us. Jesus is praying in these sections for his own glory. He'll pray in the next sections, both for his people, that are, that those that are around him now, and then in the end of this chapter, he'll actually pray for you. He'll pray for all those also who are going to come to join in with that glory. It a, is a, it's a glorious prayer. So um, th- this is the glory, though, of knowing God. And, and knowledge is also. So glory is hard to get your hands around. And knowledge, you get your head around wrong. We are materialists, data-driven. Yeah, I've got a bunch of Microsoft people here and accountants and engineers. And you think knowledge is just about data. okay? And, and what you're going to find is knowledge is about something far more than simply data, knowing about something. When God uses this word knowing throughout the Old and New Testament, he means something far deeper, actually something far more glorious. Okay, so let's look at this prayer and, and see if we can catch a, a better and a deeper understanding that, that ministers to us, that draws us into a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge of God through, through this prayer that Jesus is praying. So it says that Jesus spoke these words referring to the sermon that had gone on, 14, 15, and 16, and then he lifted his eyes to heaven, which, by the way, is, is, is nice to see that it's not required of you when you pray that you bow your head and, and fold your hands. It probably is important to always think that you don't just pray with your mind, but we pray with our bodies. We we put our bodies in a place where we are acknowledging that we are speaking to someone, that we are are speaking in honor and respect and reverence to someone. Uh, But nevertheless, Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven and he says, "'Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you.'" So, several times in the gospel, Jesus told his listeners that his hour had not yet come, but now he says his hour has come. In chapter two, during the wedding at Cana uh, in Galilee, Jesus uh, tells his, uh, his tells his mother when she says, "No, take care of this wine problem." Oh, I can't help it. I understand that we had a uh, we had a little break in here next door um, overnight. Somebody broke into to Providence next door. Um, all, all I've heard is that the only thing that they stole was Emmanuel's wine. So now there may be more, there may be more, I don't see Ryan here, but but maybe there's more that was taking place, but they stole the wine. Now, I I don't know about you, but I, you know, I've always wondered what does it mean to drink in an unworthy manner and, and then, and then to be, you know, damned to, to even death. But I would, I think we should warn those crooks that that would not be a good bottle of wine to drink. Jesus in at the wedding in Cana of Galilee said that uh, he told his mother, no, no, my hour has not yet come. The time for my revelation, for my glorification has not yet come. He said the same thing to his brothers um, who wanted him to go down to the feast and reveal who he was in chapter 7. Uh, and then later, after, or after enduring the, after that feast, he also said it again to his followers who were, who were gathered around him, demanding that he prove who he was. He says, my hour has not yet come. But from chapter 12, verse 20, when some Greeks tried to see him, Jesus now begins to say that his hour has come. And, and th- this happens uh, in chapter 12 and chapter 13, as well as he begins this, uh, this, uh, the uh, Passover meal with his, with his uh, um, uh, disciples. We, we've seen before that the glory Jesus is referring to is his final ascension on, on the throne, but it is an ascension that is preceded by a glorious crucifixion. Just after Jesus, um, uh, just after he points out who is going to betray him, and then, um, and then Judas departs, right after that, in verse 31 of chapter 13, it says, so now when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. So we see that it's not just his ascension, but he knows that the work that's going to take place because this man has left and is going to betray him is part of the glory Is part of the glory of Jesus Christ. He goes on, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. And so that evening is, of course, the evening of Christ's arrest. So Christ on the cross is glorious because there and only there, his atoning death paid for all the sins of his chosen ones. It is the central moment in all of history. So in verse 2, he says, "...as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you, Father, have given him, the Son." There's a mutual glorification between the Father and the Son and in this great act. It shines at the cross and then it shines also through the resurrection. In Romans 1.4, we, we, we are told that, that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the glory, sometimes we'll say, someone will say, well, is the glorification, is his glory the crucifixion or is his glory the resurrection? And you could say, yes, and his ascension and his coronation, and then his authoritative rule over all of the world. What does he say in Romans, uh, in Matthew chapter 28? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm out, um, I'm, I'm out, I'm talking to the pollsters, and I'm out campaigning to get authority over all of heaven and earth. I hope that most will vote for me. No, he says, All authority has been given to me, it's been given to him by the Father in heaven and earth. And here he says in his prayer, as you have given him authority over all flesh, over all of creation, it's been given to him. And so, we are to see that the cross is not just a path to glory, but also a path of glory. It is the path itself that is glorious. In addition, this path of glory was a good and proper pursuit because it glorified the Father. It was right for Jesus to pursue glory. So, so wonderful to consider and meditate on. And then he says, there, really, there's three gifts from the Father that are given to the Son in this act of glory that shows up here in, in verse 2. First, as I mentioned, Christ is given authority over all flesh. Jesus came as the ruler of the destinies of every man and every woman. Jesus Christ came and and sits on the throne of heaven, and he now rules over the destiny of everyone. It doesn't matter whether they acknowledge him or not. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't make him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We laud and honor him that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and then we should act like it. Um, but we also understand that not only is he he have this authority over all flesh, but that authority has granted him through his father and in his father's election, a final sifting of all the wheat and tares or the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, 31 through 33. Listen to these words. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Pretty sure, isn't he? So that first gift is universal, and then this second gift is particular. Out of the great multitude of humanity, particular persons were given to Christ to receive salvation. He's given the gift of authority over all flesh, and then the Father has also particularly given those whom he predetermined, predestined before the foundation of the world, the elect that the atoning work would be efficacious for. The atoning work would accomplish, would be definite, and so this is the doctrine right here in this prayer: is the doctrine of election and definite atonement. Sometimes this is that is referred to as limited atonement, um, and and it gives I think a bad definition of what of what the atonement is about. All, all all positions of the atonement are limited unless you're a universalist, unless you believe that everybody is going to be saved, which the, the scriptures like like in chapter 25 are, are clear that that's not the case. But either the atonement is limited in its efficacy, that it gave the potential for anyone to be saved, but, but nobody is saved unless something else happens, or the atonement was um, limited in its scope, but definite and efficacious in those that God chose. Now, which one is it? If you read chapter, verse 2 here, it's pretty clear. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. To, in, this came up in John 6 and John 10 as well, that all of those that God elected, those are the ones for whom Christ died. Those are the ones, and he doesn't lose any of them. So, um, out of this great multitude this humanity, particular persons were given to Christ to receive salvation. For these chosen ones, Christ would provide the atonement for their salvation, which would glorify Christ and in turn bring glory to the Father. So all of this is for the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father. It's, from our perspective, salvation is, it feels like salvation is all about you, Right? And it, it is all about you. I mean, my, my goodness, there's nothing more important in your life than you be saved. There's nothing more important in your life than that that, that atonement be applied to you, that the imputation of Christ's righteousness be given to you, or you're you're dead meat, literally, right? And so it, it it is central in your mind, but it's not central in God's. It's not central in God's. It's a means to a gra- even greater end. Why were you saved? Why were you saved? Because God looked down from heaven and he saw this vast multitude of just really below average people. Then he noticed you and he thought, you know, that's a pretty good one there. I think I'll choose that one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It, um, what happened was God had a, a plan, and his, the end of his plan was his glory. That his son would be glorified, and that he would be glorified in his son's glory. There's nothing more important in all existence, in all of time and eternity and space and everything infinite, everything, uh, everything visible and invisible, nothing more important than the glory of God. The reason you were saved was for the glory of God. The reason you were saved is for, for God's name to be lifted up and glorified that his mercy be um, exalted, noticed, boasted in. So God would provide an atonement for their salvation and it would glorify Christ. Listen to Paul talk about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I mean, it's really been good for us, he says. Just as he chose us in him when, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. There's the purpose. To the praise of his glorious grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, that is in the beloved, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace which is being glorified, which is being revealed, which is, which is being radiated to all of the world, the glorious riches of the grace of God. And that is the third gift as well, um, and that is eternal life, this eternal life that is granted, eternal life for Jesus to give to his own. But then he turns in verse 3, so we understand these great gifts that glorify God, okay? And then he, and then he says, "And the thing that he's given is eternal life, And if someone said to you, what is eternal life, would you answer it the way Jesus just does in verse 3? Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they may know you? That's eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is not simply unending existence. So Eternal life is not like you didn't have eternal life, and now you do have eternal life. The the issue is not not the eternal or non-eternal part of your existence, because unending existence is for those sent to hell too. The emphasis isn't really on eternal. The distinction is not eternal life versus non-eternal life. It is the distinction of eternal life versus eternal death. John the Baptist would make this clear in John chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Uh, By the way, everlasting and eternal is the same same Greek word. just gets translated differently every once in a while. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him eternally, everlastingly, by the way. Jesus tells us this is eternal life in in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this knowledge is not accessible to anyone unless God gives it to them. This is like, so think about that. Well, listen to, verse, listen to 1 John 5. And we know that the Son of God, we know, he writes to believers, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So, that he has given to us that we may know him. This knowledge of God, this knowing God, is a gift from God. It's not something that we can attain to, it's something that God has to give to us. This knowledge of God is tied to eternal life throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament. It's not a a newfangled idea. This knowledge is more important than human wisdom, riches, or strength. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him glory who glories in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So the gift of God, the gift of God of eternal life, is that you would know him. That you would know and understand him. That you would know that he is the God who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the, in the earth. And that they are his delight. That they are his delight. Jeremiah promised that in the new covenant, all would know God personally without an intermediary. Jeremiah 31, 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, probably referring to kind of the priestly mediation uh, in, in order to be able to approach God, you would have to go through a priest. No more would there be a priestly mediation that takes place in order to know the Lord. For they shall, he says in this new covenant, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That iniquity and and sin that had kept them from the glory of God is going to be taken care of, and they're going to enter into the glory of the Lord, and they will know him in that kind of way. When When God brought his salvation, Isaiah promised that when it would come, he says, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Habakkuk will echo that, but he'll add to it the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The glory of knowing God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Glorious, optimistic view of the work of salvation in time and history in the age that we now live. The knowledge of God, we are told in Hosea 6, is better than burnt offerings. Again, this, this distinction between the old covenant administration and the new covenant administration of knowing personally, being personally um, connected and with God. The knowledge of God is better than birth, burnt offerings. And we are told in Proverbs 3 that, to, uh, that if we know him or that we are to uh, know him and in that he will direct our paths. Proverbs 3:6, 3, 3, in all your ways acknowledge him, literally know him, in all your ways know him, and he will direct your paths. How do you know what to do? How do you know which way you should go? Well, Proverbs says, know him, know God. Acknowledge God, and he will direct your paths. Okay, so Jesus Christ is the only way to true knowledge of the only true God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Then he goes on, the next verse says this, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. He wants to know that this knowledge, this knowing of Jesus is always connected to knowing the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the way to the Father. So, I want knowing God to bubble in your minds. I want you to be thinking about that. All these these promises, all these descriptions of what knowing God means should change your view or hopefully deepen your view. It's not about, it's not simply data. Of course, we're supposed to know about God. Uh, I suppose, of, of course, we're supposed to know his characteristics and what he's done, the history of God's works. Of course, but that's not getting to the what what Jesus is really referring to when it comes to knowing him. The elect are those who not only are not only those who know God, but maybe more importantly, are first known by God. Galatians four. Um, where Paul writes, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who, which by nature are not gods. So what do we Gentiles do? Um, and the unbelieving Jews, what we do is we don't know God, whatever that means. We don't know God. And because we don't know him, we, by nat- we, we serve other gods. We pursue other gods. We pursue other glory. But then he goes on in Galatians four and says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God. Wait a second. What do you mean known by God? You mean there's some people that God doesn't know? Right? See, it's not about data or information, is it? God knows everyone. God knows everything. But particularly to us, to his people, Paul wants to say, but now after you've known God, or rather are known by God, in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. And it could also be said that we know God because he first knew us. And this, this all of this should help us peer into the idea of what this knowledge is. Eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God is eternal life. In, in uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, speaking of the election of Israel God says, of the nation of Israel, he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. There it is again. Well, he didn't know the other nations. I know he knew the other nations. He speaks about the other nations, right? He talks about the other nations. He established those other nations. What do you mean, God? Well, he's not talking about knowing like we're talking about it. Jesus says he knows his sheep. And to those who are not his sheep, he says, knowing them full well, I never knew you, right? Right? Matthew 7, 23. Depart from me, I never knew you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know my sheep. But to you, I never knew you. So, knowing God is not first or primarily intellectual understanding. Knowing God is not first and primarily intellectual understanding. Look, really, the very first time we, we see the word knowing used this way is about Adam and Eve. Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Okay, so that's uh, Genesis 4. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. So, there we go. Knowing has something to do with intimacy, has something to do with um, within a covenant bond. Maybe knowing God, maybe being able to know God, has more to do with these kinds of things. This knowledge refers to a covenantal union which bears forth fruit. And that's why it's so important that you come into a covenantal union with God where you hear from God, I am your God, you are my people. The, the, the initiation of God, I am your God, and you are my people. And because of that, like the covenant established in the Mosaic, in the Mosaic law, when God says, um, out of the house of Egypt, out of the bondage of, of slavery. I've delivered you. I'm your God. I'm the Lord, your God. I've delivered you. I have freed you. That's how my covenant with you starts. I've brought you to myself. Now, here's the way we're going to live together. He's like a husband who's gone and grabbed his bride and brought the bride to himself and said, I will cover you. I will cover you with my protecting, providing, secure love. And you will follow me because I've chosen you. And you enter into that covenant bond. And when you enter into that covenant union, fruit bears forth. Something far more than just the two of you comes forth. And of course, as Adam knows Eve, she conceives. But knowing knowing someone is not just about having babies, but it is about having babies. And it it is about the union and the fruit of union that takes place in the bonds of covenant. A covenant... A covenant is a, is a solemn bond sovereignly administered. And so, knowing God is being bound in a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, initiated by the Father, and based on the finished work of Jesus, and mediated to us by the Spirit. I want you to listen to that verse, uh, my, my sentence again, and I want you to picture a baptism. Okay? I want you to picture a baptism. Knowing God is being bound in a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, initiated by the Father, based on the finished work of Jesus, and mediated to us by the Spirit. This is the work of knowing God. This is the entrance into the knowledge of God. This is what it means to be his people. This is the knowledge that Paul prayed for for his people to grow deeper and deeper and deeper into. In in Ephesians 3.19, he prays that they would know the love of Christ. They would know know how deep and how wide, they would know how long and how high is the love of Christ, which he says passes knowledge. They, They would know that which passes knowledge. So he's playing with words here. On purpose. He's making the point that, the, that you would know the love of Christ that goes beyond data. That goes just beyond a bunch of, just a bunch of data and information. I, I want you to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. And then he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Overflowing, overflowing glory. The glory and the love of of God J I Packer in his book Knowing God which I would recommend to you commend to you to read says knowing God is more than knowing about him it is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you i love that last phrase being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you so that's knowing God knowing God is eternal life Jesus then closes this section of the prayer and says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus says that he had glorified the Father by finishing the work the Father had given him to do in verse 4. And I, I think that uh, people get confused because he hadn't yet gone to the cross yet. I think he's referring, first of all, to his Perfect obedience, his, his life in perfect obedience. He knew his saving mission was he knew that he was sent John 3:16. He knew that the Father had sent him. And he said that, and, and he said in, in uh, chapter nine, that he must work the works of him who sent me. He knew that the Father had a plan for him to follow. So this work had included his humble incarnation. It says in, uh, um, in Philippians 2:7 that he uh, humbled himself and became obedient to the father even to the point of death and his perfect lifelong obedience and his faithful rebuff of satan's attempt to dissuade him during his temptation in the wilderness this would be christ's active obedience in his life to obey the father perfectly his passive obedience was about to come as he would completely submit as he had but but particularly as he would go to the cross and bear the, the uh, wrath of God for our sin. So this work had included this, this life that he had lived in, in, in obedience, in faithful obedience to God, because he knew God, because he was in that covenantal relationship, the eternal covenant of the, of the triune God, actually. He was in covenant with God, and it was his desire, his plan, his goal to glorify God. His goal was to glorify God more than it was to save us. Saving us was his means by which he would glorify the Father, the Father's plans. So, um, his his great work of glory was now before him. Verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. So, there's more glorification to take place. And it says, and while it is all accomplished according to God's sovereignty, um, this does not dissuade Christ from praying to the Father. Rather, it functions as an incentive to pray. I just want to make that side comment. When you think about God having predestined all things, when you think about God's sovereignty over all things, when, when, when that is um, when made clear and believed, you naturally begin fall into then, well, why pray? Well, why then shall we pray? Well, Jesus, who has told us um, that, that God has ordered all things, has predestined all things, and even has... Um, and even has planned to glorify him, his son, through the cross, prays that God would glorify him through the cross. God knows, God knows that not only, has, not only has he predestined his ends, what he's going to do, but the means by which he's going to accomplish those things. Paul understands this, and so as, he's pray, as he discusses the doctrine of election, the predestination of all things, then turns and prays gives himself to great prayer, gives himself to great labor for the sake of of accomplishing what God had already predestined. So so predestination is not fatalism. It just isn't. Not in the words of Scripture. We are to understand that understanding these things actually provides a function for us, an incentive to pray, something to study and consider more as we grow. So Jesus' obedience brought his sheep eternal life. It brought his sheep the knowledge of God. And this is all to the praise of his gracious glory, Father and Son. We know that glory is magnified beyond the grave and now is radiant in heaven. What does the glory of Jesus look like today? Turn with me to Revelation. Let's look at two short passages here. So this Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, who was crucified, is now described by John in the book of Revelation in this way. Chapter 1, verse 13. I turned, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes... Like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, when a sharp two edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. There is the revelation of the present glory of God. His glorious work is now sung over and over and over again in heaven. Chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. Let me back up to verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Do you wonder, do you wish sometimes that you were there? To see this glory, to participate in that glorious worship? Well, you are. Didn't you see it in the verse? Look again. Look again at verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our prayers, our singing, the psalms that we are singing are heard in the, in, in the gates in the throne of heaven, and they are now and for all eternity. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we no longer go to a mountain that is on this earth. We go, when we, we are gathered together as his saints, we are lifted up into the heavens where Jesus himself sits at the throne, where he receives our prayers and our worship. These ones this morning. And as he receives these prayers and worship, it has to do with, then with his judging the world, with his pouring out his judgment and wrath, with his exercising his dominion over all the earth. Which is why he tells you to pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those prayers are lifted up to before him and in the glory of this with all of the angels and the saints that have already preceded us around his throne, he says, all of heaven and earth are shaken. And the glory of God is revealed, and the world is saved. That's the plan. That's the plan, he says. That's what is happening in the gates of heaven, and is what is happening every Lord's day as we gather before him at his throne. We come to know God, we come to see his glory, we come to be equipped by his knowledge and by his glory. We are bound and renewed in a sovereignly administered covenant. You are to hear the voice of your Father in heaven. I'm your Father. I am your God. You're my people. And then you're to receive it, a sealing of that knowledge, as you come to the table and fellowship with him. And then to hear his commission as you are sent into the world as his thundering glory in your lives of obedience. Because consider this, this glory overflows from here. It overflows to the Christian and the church. So we participate in bringing the knowledge of God to our children, to the next generation, because there are generations and generations to come. We participate in bringing forth the glory of God in bringing forth eternal life, in bringing forth the knowledge of him as we go and raise our children, and as we go and participate in bringing the knowledge of God to the world all around us in innumerable ways, all kinds of different ways, which continues the work then of glorifying God. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, where he says the church is the salt and the light of this world, in this world. And he says that our good works, that is our obedience... Jesus says, your good works, your obedience will be seen by men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. They will not glorify your Father in heaven unless he grants them eternal life. But he says, your good works, your obedience, your faithfulness before God is going to be used by God to bring eternal life to others. Which means your life is, your life is a chosen work of God to be used by him to, to radically and eternally change the lives of others around you. That's what he's called you to. This is what, and this is, this is what Jesus is, is beginning to pray in chapter 17 and continues. We were created for glory. We were created for glory. And you are going to hear an amazing, an amazing word on the day you come before the very face of of Jesus Christ, where he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom which is yours. You are created for that glory. And so it is right and proper to pursue it, to pursue it with all you have. The glory you are to pursue is the glory of eternal life. And eternal life is knowing God, beholding his glory and reflecting that glory In glad obedience. None of us is Jesus, but in a cross-bearing life, as his disciples, we can pray this prayer as well. Father, glorify me. See, if you understand that rightly, God would want you to pray that. Father, glorify me. Glorify me, your servant and child, so that I might glorify you. In fact, if he doesn't glorify you, you'll never be able to glorify him. If he doesn't use you, if he doesn't bestow upon you, if he doesn't give you his glory and the knowledge of his son, you won't be able to bring any glory to him. So pray, God, Father, in this way, in this way, glorify me, your servant, your child, the cross-bearing life, glad obedience, that I might be salt and light and bring glory to your name. You're being transformed, each one of us being transformed, we are told from one degree of glory to another in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so this is an ongoing work of bestowing glory upon us. And Christian, you have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians four six. For it is God, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the glory of God, or the glory of knowing God. Father, thank you for your word, that you for your son, we thank you for your son, we thank you for your sovereign pur- purposes in our life. Glorify us as your children in this life, that we might know you and the glory of your salvation, and bring glory to you as we shine like lights before men. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond. We'll turn to number 475.